Welcome to the latest Spotlight on IRT podcast, where our experts talk about best practices in the field of clinical development and innovations to improve today's clinical trials. This podcast is brought to you by Almac Clinical Technologies, the leader in interactive response technology. For more information, visit www.almacgroup.com. And now, here's your host, Matt Lowry. Hello, and welcome to the Spotlight on IRT podcast. I'm your host, Matt Lowry. Since the revisions to the ICHE6 were issued, we've seen an increased scrutiny from regulatory agencies regarding sponsor oversight. I want to be very transparent. We work with a company who was cited against this by a regulatory agency. They felt the standard two-year audit cycle was enough to demonstrate their oversight, and based on the inspection, it wasn't. Since then, we've seen several different approaches to achieving compliance to this regulation. Some have been very successful, others not so much. Given the wide array of companies we work with, we wanted to provide some commentary around this very topic and how it relates, along with relationship management, to ensuring a clinical trial runs smoothly and effectively. My guests today include Mike Hutton, Robin Wood, and Steve McDonald, experts in this very area who have worked with companies of varying sizes to implement and execute these steps in order to ensure they are meeting the appropriate regulations. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. In talking about oversight, we've seen guidance from the ICH E6 and the new revision from the EMA, from the MHRA. Uh, Recently, there was an FDA guidance that came out, and that's really been a focus lately of the regulatory agencies. And this is really where you come in. This is what you do on a daily basis. Robin, could you possibly provide us some information about where this is coming from and when it started? How far back do you want to go? Uh, I think, you know, from my point of view, concentrating on the ITH, uh, that's obviously closer to home, dare I say, for me personally. But the requirement for a sponsor to oversee group, the CRO, the vendor that it contracting with hasn't hasn't uh, changed for a long time but I think what we're seeing now is there's more scrutiny from the regulators that uh, the sponsor now has to make sure they're actually doing it so rather than lip service they're actually having to provide evidence the oversight is taking place and obviously when a, a regulator comes in they can actually find themselves in hot water if they can't demonstrate what they're doing so I think that's the the biggest change and probably the reason we're sat around having this discussion right now. That makes sense. And so what we're seeing now is really more electronic systems being used. When this was first put out, it wasn't really understood what their role was. If we look back at some of those first ones, it was really vague. And with the emergence of more electronic solutions, the regulators and industry itself are really employing those a lot more. Mike, Steve, have you guys seen anything on your ends about electronic oversight, if you will? From my end, I think the, the big issue is they know they've got to do it. Um, you know, and they are looking much more closely at IT. And I, I attended two conferences recently um, where everybody wanted to do oversight. They'd all spoken to the regulators. They'd all said, yeah, we need to, over, you know, you need to have oversight of your electronic uh, systems. So IRT in our instant. And I think it just really wasn't clear because we went around the room and the sponsors were not clear what that meant. Um, and I, I think back to what 
Robin said, historically, it was much easier for everybody to understand what oversight would be, because when everything's on paper, it's, it's, it's relatively easy to have oversight of the paper, whether it's collecting it together, whether it's going to the site, etc. And I think the electronic system, that's caused a little bit more confusion. And what it looks like, I'm seeing, you know, depending on which client we speak to, they each have a slightly different opinion. I think the problem is we don't actually know what the regulators really mean by oversight. They use that phrase without actually providing the clarity. I think one of the issues we've got here as well is, you know, the original guidelines were written in 1996, somewhere around there, and, you know, in 1996 you looked at the number of IRT systems that are out there, or electronic systems that are out there, and it was really an emerging market, and very new, so uh, the description of what to do or the, uh, the way to embrace technology was very vague. Now uh, we are starting to see that firm up, and I think, you know, you're right, Mike, the here is oversight means different things to uh, different sponsors, and we, we have to work within those descriptions. We find ourselves doing different or multiple things, multiple different things for multiple different clients and I'm sure that will continue for the foreseeable future but as, as oversight is reviewed by the regulators you know at the client level I'm sure that more clarity will come from it uh, and we will find ourselves getting a more harmonized approach to it but in the interim we're, we're delivering what the client wants expects uh, as much as we can. I agree I think like most things you mentioned when things were paper-based very cut and dry very clear now that we're almost exclusively electronically managing things. Like most things, the pendulum will swing 180 degrees. And I think the answer is probably more in the middle. I think the pendulum has to bottom out a little bit. Initially, we gravitate towards things that we can track, things that are easily trackable, like training records. You can look at a training system and see who's done their training or who hasn't. Uh, you can ensure that everybody is trained by a certain point in time or before they did certain activities. It's very easy to track that. I think where we'll, we'll end up will be a little bit more in the middle. We'll be a combination of things we can track, but then also designing our processes and our systems to be inspection ready and to be launched and, again, designed in such a way with that goal at the end. I think being the the traffic cop at the end of the highway is not what we're trying to, to have here. I think we want to kind of bake that quality or that oversight into our entire process so that it's very easy to document that it's taken place rather than trying to look backwards at a series of activities and trying to highlight, oh yeah, we had oversight here and we had some oversight there. It needs to be a, a, a blanket of oversight over the entire process and I think that means we need to be designing what we do in such a way to include that from the outset rather than try to retroactively prove it or apply it. And I, I want to add, guys, this is something that, although there's a new emphasis on it, there's been a few warning letters or other findings that have been issued out there. Robin, uh, Mike, you familiar with any? We're more than well aware that you know, some very large farmers have had warning letters for inadequate oversight. And some of those are from quite a while ago because, you know, like I said, this is not uh, the, the requirement for oversight generally, not, not just over the technology side of running cl the clinical trial, but oversight of a clinical trial in general, be that CRA site, you know, has been around for a while and those warning letters do exist. If you go to that website now, I'm sure you'll see some very relevant cases that are technology bound 
until people get their ducks in a line. That's not going to change. No, and I think the, the interesting thing, though, is that it's the level of granularity that you have to have the oversight at that I think actually probably scares some sponsors as well. Um, you know, they, they feel that they have to be electronic experts to understand what that means. And, you know, it's also, I think, we can see in the industry from various IRT companies that we all perhaps have a different expectation of what we need to deliver to our clients to give them the oversight. I mean, let's, let's cut out things like audits that where you would go as a sponsor and you would both audit perhaps a study in the electronic system, but you'd also order, audit the vendor, ensure that they've got disaster recovery, all the, all the things that, and the audits that Matt and I have sat in take several days and over all those various processes. But it's, I think what's also worrying for some of them is getting down to that really minute level to understand what that means at oversight. And I know from an ALMAC perspective, we feel that to have that oversight, you have to have, and I hate to use the term, a naked look almost at our database without us producing the data into a nice fancy report that just says it's happened A, B, C. We want to show you what the process was because that's our understanding of what the regulation says. And Matt, I don't know if you've got any opinion on how we deliver that visibility into our databases. Yeah, Mike, I think that makes a good point, too. What are the different types of oversights we've seen? What are some of those methods? You, Steve, you work with the definition of big pharma. And, Mike, you have a couple clients that you work with on a regular basis that are a little smaller. And, Robin, you know, your experience has been back and forth between from, from each end of the spectrum. So maybe, Steve, from de- textbook definition of large pharma, what type of methods have you seen how they employ oversight? Yeah, the client that I work with has a pretty unique perspective on this. Most large pharma companies feel like, well, if you're going to have anything, there needs to be a ton of paperwork and charters and documents and, and stuff to prove that we're doing what we're doing and, and map out what it is we'd like to do. And I think a lot of times so much emphasis is put on things like the charter and communication plans and different racy type documents that we spend all of our effort putting them together and not necessarily following them. And I think in cases that I've seen, we we do a really good job of, we have those documents and they're in place and they're reviewed periodically, but the, the biggest part of the process that I've seen is that they actually, they walk the walk. It's not just a bunch of documents in a, in a file cabinet somewhere that if the inspector shows up, we can show them. We're actually utilizing what we've put in place regularly. We have different levels of governance. We have executive level, operational level governance, and then study team level uh, processes that they work through on a day-to-day basis. And each of those is designed to kind of be an escalation point for the one below it. And I think one of the things that we've seen that's, that's been really beneficial to the relationship has been we let items and we let issues stay at their appropriate level of that governance pyramid. There's not this mad rush to escalate every little thing. We, we really want the people who are most involved in a particular situation to be the ones that regulate it and manage it and sort it through it. And if there is an incident or an issue, document it properly, put a cap in place. And that, that requires a lot of mutual trust. And I feel like as a vendor, we're, we're awfully put in a position where we're, we're kind of dictated. Here's how it's going to be, vendor. And I feel like the the clients that get it and the clients that we're able to work with 
most easily are the ones that have really a two-way street and they have that that mutual trust to allow the different levels of that governance pyramid do what they're designed to do. It's not just lip service. It's not just poster on a wall. Hey, we're supposed to be following this. They actually put it into practice, and and that requires you know really a mutual approach to the relationship. We see similar to Steve mentioned in regards you know this documents governance documents quality agreements. They they become more prevalent um, to clients that I've worked with. I think what we're also seeing is a need to look at the data and the changes. They want to be able to show and demonstrate that they haven't just requested a change, so, you know, for example, a date of birth, that we can then demonstrate to them all the steps that we've taken internally in what we would consider a human-readable format that allows them to take more overview and looking at that. And I have one client who is now doing that on a regular basis and has recently implemented that and we're working with them to make that successful. Um, so I think that's an interesting point where these clients are now saying we, we've got to do more than just, as Steve mentioned, we've actually also got to really start looking at that data. And the feeling I'm getting from other clients in the industry is that's also potentially where they're going to go. But again, I think it's, it frightens them a little bit because it's, it's starting to get beyond the agreement stage. It's, it's very interesting what they are looking for. And one of the biggest challenges I think they have with it is they're asked to use the reason for the change. You know, when they're actually looking specifically at details of the reason for the change. And this is the problem is that it doesn't actually sit within the IRT sometimes what the reason for the change is. We have a very justified reason. To come back to what Steve mentioned, we've had process procedures, etc. as to why we made the change, but that's still not the reason for the change. And I've heard this from several clients and at several conferences. People are asking, what is the reason when you make a data change? And I think one way to look at it is the IRT is just a conduit of that. It's not the, the holder of the reason, because the reason isn't because we were told the reason is something else. When you take something like that, do you find that there's a, a place to have those definitions for those critical points or pathways or are standards really the way to go then? I think standards are certainly the way to go. Um, you can't obviously standardize everything uh, because... I remember many years ago when I started working in clinical trials, someone told me that you know once you put patients into the mix, it all becomes very, very different. Um, and I think you know you can have standards, but it's come to back to, to somewhat Steve said as well is it's having those agreements and those open discussion um, dialogues and the ability to have a positive dialogue with your client to resolve these issues, uh, and that that's really really critical because you can't. You can't manage it, you know, you can't define up front everything that's going to happen. You have to have those that you know are going to happen, those that your years of experience will tell you will happen, but then you also have to have in place process and procedure to accommodate and cope those unexpected items that may come up and, you know, have the right people making those decisions as well, because that's critical as well. You've got to make sure the right people are making the decisions, so biostats, drug management, clinical, etc., all involved at the right part of that process. So really putting together some form of a racy diagram, who's going to be responsible or who's going to be consulted for each of these changes. Yeah, Mike, Mike actually brings up a good example with his, his quote about patient involvement changing everything. I think that's the perfect example of 
whether what you have in place is working. If there is a patient issue, uh, you know, in our world, we're, we're dosing the subjects. We're, we're the ones deciding who gets what treatment or whether they get randomized and things like that. Um, when there is an issue uh, with a patient, it's kind of an all-hands-on-deck moment. People are rapidly escalating. There's a patient at a site who can't do what they need to do. We need to execute our, our plans immediately for what we need to do to get that patient taken care of. And I think that's the pressure test for our processes. And there have been multiple times where follow the plan that's in place, and maybe the outcome wasn't exactly what we liked, but we've, we've always, in my relationship, gone back and used that example as a way to maybe refine a process or clarify a process, make sure everybody's on the same page for a particular process, because Mike's correct. Once there's a patient involvement, it, it, it's, it's in practice now. It's not just theory, and we have to make sure that we do everything we can, and it's much, much better, much less chaotic when those escalation pathways are defined and the process is defined, and if we have to step outside of the technology and do something manually, there is a process that's defined for how to do that, what we document, whether we go back and, and record what's been taking place in the, in the technology. But those, those escalation pathways are not just for the relationship level. They, they, they have to be in place at the issue level as well because, one last time, give the patient example, we, we need to be able to act quickly and do the right thing. There's zero margin for error when there's a patient waiting. And the, the, the times that we've been most successful, it's when we've had that, that plan in place, the escalation pathways are in place for the different activities that need to take place when you have to handle an urgent patient situation. And we're able to take care of that subject before they're sent home from the site. I guess where I'm kind of seeing this then is at the operational level, the trial team, it's not just oversight at this governance level. 100%. It's oversight for the, the actual project teams, the trial teams that are working together with the technology. Am, am, I, am I on path there? I, I believe that you are, and I think the relationships that we have that are most successful have that in place, like I mentioned before, that pyramid of, of the relationship. There's the, the executive level, operational level, and study level. There are There's not one process that governs all of that. There's really a process for each layer of that pyramid, and... They, they're similar in, in concept, but I think as you go down the pyramid, they're more and more uh, granular and a little bit more specific to different activities. And those relationships where we've seen the most consistent success and, and not have fluctuations in whether we're, we're successful or not uh, in those relationships. And I think something that you said, Steve, as well that's relevant to that is when you have these processes, the relationships, because that's what it's, a lot of it is about with oversight and good client relationships is relationships, because sometimes it's not just about doing what everybody says, it's also about saying no. And when you're saying no, it's saying that's our experience. The, the funny thing was you talked about ICH in 1996 when the first regulations came out, that's when our company was just about formed. Their experience to say no with an understanding of why we're saying no, not just because we can use the, the word, but because we understand that later on, when it comes to an audit, the first thing the auditors are going to say, and it's not the client audit, we're all really thinking about the regulatory audit, they wouldn't want you to do that. And that's, that's critical as well. And I think, you know, when you talk about all these documentations, it's also building up the trust and understanding around that and having that relationship. Because, yeah, patients can cause problems um, when they come into the system, and clinical trials as well are always constantly changing. So that's really important. Yeah, I think I was just, I was just going to add and uh, come back to the point uh, that you both made, Steve started first with the pyramid. Yeah, you need that pyramid in place, and 
got one of the layers missing, you tend to find that you don't then have that oversight that's required. So, you know, we have a lot of clients who spend uh, a lot of time putting, for example, governance in place. They'll set up a pyramid, so they've got sort of project team fitting, feeding into some sort of operational oversight, and then above that you'll have what I call the partnership oversight. And you need those three tiers in there cooperating and talking to each other to make it work. If one of them stops, uh, for example, communicating, then it, it very quickly breaks down. And the clients where we see it work best are the ones that have invested in some sort of technology oversight group. So we the Strategic Relationship Management Group, we work with a lot of clients that have actually invested and put the money where the mouth is, as it were, and employed people to look after the IRT system uh, on the sponsor side. And you tend to find those clients then operate much more within that pyramid and much more efficiently and get the better results and overall they get the oversight they need. So when something does go wrong with the client, uh, sorry, with the patient, uh, it's very quickly resolved. Uh, and then at the other end, where you're working with a client that may have only just given us one study uh, and is moving towards perhaps a slightly larger program of work that doesn't have the oversight, you, you tend to find it a little more erratic and more problems can be introduced. So that pyramid, yeah, very, very important. Is there a reflection period here? Is there a time to go back? Yeah, I think that that needs to be baked into your overarching program or process. There's periodic checks, but when we have when we have certain issues that come up, I mentioned the uh, you know the all hands on deck when there's a, when there's a patient waiting at a site for something. If the plan gets executed precisely and everything goes the way it's designed, great, move forward. If it doesn't, learning from those lessons is something that's really important. So having a find lessons learned review process is also it's something that we've seen to be effective where I kind of mentioned it earlier when I was talking about responding to a patient issue. If it doesn't go the way it's designed and, you know, there's a million things that can happen at the site where, with a subject, you know, we're shipping drug around the world. There's a lot of different factors that come into play. And I think it's something Mike said, you can't make everything standard. You try to make as much standard as makes sense. But being able to review lessons learned from different examples are the way that we evolve the standards. We either grow them, we maybe tweak them, they need to be updated. Uh, there's some scenario that we would like them to cover uh, that maybe we didn't thought about up, up front and we, we saw it happen in the field. So having that opportunity to, to go back and review and augment our existing processes is definitely important. I don't think, you know, in our software, we never archive version one, right? There's always amendments, there's always changes that take place. Same thing has to be uh, applied to the process we use over the course of a multi-year relationship. What we set up on day one isn't necessarily going to be effective three, four, five, six years down the line. Things evolve, so we do want to periodically review and have that baked into the process that we set up. That works great. What about the two-person virtual biotech? How does a two-person virtual company where they're small, they have one product, does oversight look different? I mean, they're not going to have the executive level and the operational level. The guy who's signing the, the requirements is also the same one managing trial and the drug supply. What does that look like? What What's the difference there? Mike, Robin, any uh, any thoughts on that? It's, uh, it's a lot more hands-on would be my immediate re- uh, response to that. We, those small virtual companies, they need a lot of hand-holding. 
can't assume that they have any knowledge associated with the IRT at all. So the the hand-holding that we have to do is, in many respects, is consultation. So we will take them through many aspects of specking, building, and testing uh, an IRT system. But once the system goes live, it doesn't finish there. There will be, as Stephen Michael said, there will be difficulties with the trial when it runs. With, with every system that's put in place, uh, there'll be a curveball. We'll have to deal with that. And for a large, large farmer with their own resources, they tend to be uh, coming to us and talking about solutions. Uh, whereas I would expect uh, a more virtual company to come to us and not necessarily have the knowledge, and they'll be asking us for the solution. So, like I say, it's far more consultational, and we would need to think about that when we begin working with them, so we can build in. Um, escalation pathways that you know get them the quick response that they want and ensure uh, that they're, yeah, they're getting information that helps them to make decisions. Because ultimately, as we know from the ICH guidelines, it, the sponsor response is the sponsor responsibility uh, to ensure that the system that's built and the way it functions and ultimately the, ultimately the data integrity and the utmost. Um, yeah, for patient safety, it's their responsibility to make sure that all takes place, that we're here to help. But, uh, Mike, I don't know if you've got any other experience. I mean, I think really when you start dealing with the small people, you, you've covered most of it. I think that that's also when hopefully they are coming to you know an IRT vendor with experience because you have to build up trust because in their case, that's when they are, are you know looking to you to give them examples, looking to you to tell them how to build the system, but also looking at their protocol and advising them where potentially they might see issues and challenges so that you build in very robust processes in the background because of the fact there is so few people there to help. And I think that that's the critical thing of building up that trust and relationship. I mean, it's important in all client relationships, but when you're, as you said, Matt, the guy who's signing the proposal is probably also signing the specs potentially. It's demonstrating your know, experience it's building up on that knowledge not just through the documents but through the whole process of those documented documents and the requirements of the system to make sure that you've covered everything. Assume then we're moving away from more of a governance model and moving more towards a relationship management plan standards to help them demonstrate that oversight to say here's the relationship management that we have in place here's who's responsible for what here's the standards for what my IRT vendor does. Here's the standards for this clinical development. Yeah, I, I think what's what's common across all clients, whether large or small, is the fact that in order for these relationships to be successful, there needs to be a high level and amount of communication. The difference lies in how that communication is organized. When you're talking about big pharma, you have entire departments uh, responsible for different deliverables, whereas the small smaller companies, study team members are wearing multiple hats at the same time. So having uh, a flexible approach or, or multiple different playbooks that you could deploy is something that is uh, going to help you be a little bit more effective with a, a wide gamut of, of client types. How that communication takes place becomes the variable, but the, the fact is high amounts of communication are necessary regardless of, of who the client is and what size they are. So having the ability to 
scale things down or scale them up as study teams shrink or grow in size is something that's going to be pretty important to have a successful relationship. I think one of the interesting things with a small company is communication probably becomes easier because you've only got one person to talk to. They've got a large farmer to deal with and they've got multiple contacts. So uh, sometimes, yeah, simply scheduling a meeting to get an issue resolved can be problematic, whereas the, the, small, the small company with a single person, guess what? It's one phone, assuming they're in, it's one phone call and you can start that that process off. Now, do they understand what they need to respond to and give the right answer? That's a, a different issue because obviously large farmers have access to huge groups of SMEs, but the, the communication process can be perhaps quicker and easier in a, in a small company. And I think that's, that's a very good point. I think when they're dealing with a small company, it's also then relying on the vendors both experienced both of the people you're dealing with perhaps at the requirement level, but also their drug management specialists, their biostats departments. Um, you know, most IRT providers have dedicated biostats uh, teams, ex experts, and you're similar for drug management. And I think they rely more on that. And obviously, but to your point, I think we still have to build out a relationship plan to ensure that the sponsor does still understand that they have ultimate responsibility. One of the more interesting scenarios, I think, is uh, when you introduce a, a CRO. So you basically a triad of uh, communication. So the sponsor's contracted with the CRO, who then contracted the, the IRT to ourselves. And you know, we, do, we deal with that on a daily basis, but you end up setting up uh, races and communication plans that involve three parties and from a contractual point of view it becomes very interesting because we're contracted with the CRO. So in theory, all our communication and flow of information needs to go through the CRO while the sponsor still needs to have the oversight that we're talking about. So the subsequent contracting activities become very interesting for the sponsor. Again, we're very experienced in what we do and we can help with that, but uh, if I was a sponsor, something that you need to think about because you can't simply wash your hands of the IRT when you contract a, a CRO and they then subcontract that to the likes of us, you know, something that they're still responsible for and they still need to ensure that uh, yeah, they've got the oversight that's required. When you have a CRO involved, guys, is, is this where you'd want to get all three parties in the room or do you handle it as two separate events? Is, because I'm assuming you're going to want to see oversight, and the regulators want to see oversight from the CRO, but they also want to see oversight from the sponsor. Pulling all three people, all three groups together, or is this kind of a matter of handling this two separate work streams? Because there's two separate agendas that are going to be happening. I, I think that if you if you have a relationship with the CRO, you probably have a two-way dialogue already established as different sponsors come along on a study-by-study -study basis, I, I think what we'd like to see is that that communication plan, rather than being a two-way street, becomes more of a triangle uh, where we have the ability to, to loop them in. The, the biggest thing I've seen over doing this for many years is when you have discussions up front about what's supposed to happen, everything goes much smoother. I think everybody enters into every relationship with a series of assumptions that they made about how things are going to be. And when those go unspoken is when you run into issues. So 
with the CRO, you'd like to have a default operating model that also has some flexibility built into it at different points, depending on the sponsor and their needs. The size of the sponsor will, will, will frequently impact that. I think large sponsors tend to dictate what they want because they have so many processes of their own that we have to dovetail into, whereas the, the smaller virtual companies, they may ask for our advice. Or they may not even know what to ask for, so it's good to have something to offer. But I think our ideal scenario would be a triangular communication model where everybody's involved and there are no surprises. Um, a lot of that is dictated by the sponsor and what their expectations are, but at, at the foundation of that, I guess maybe the bottom of that triangle should be a tight supplier to CRO relationship process that is able to be employed as a default and then with the ability to incorporate other items uh, as needed depending on the sponsor. I'll circle back on something. What does the frequency look like for oversight? Is it monthly? Is it quarterly? Is it every every year? Is it throughout periods in the trial? Through what does what does that really look like, Robin? What have what have you seen? The, the general approach for the ones that are more organized. Oversight starts at the project team level, and project team level oversight is more or less daily, weekly conversations between project team. That is, that is ongoing, especially uh, at the early stages of the build of the study. And just as the study goes live, there's an awful lot to talk about, so they're meeting very regularly. Once that settles down, you can expect project team uh, maybe to get together once every two to four weeks. When you go up a level, and the as, as we talked about earlier, the, the, the pyramid of um, activity, the, the operational oversight I would expect to see, and we do within the SRM team, we see it sort of on a, a monthly basis, so key players that are associated with overseeing the project teams will get together maybe on a monthly basis to discuss issues and issue escalation and you know, how they want to move forward uh, and things like producing or uh, reviewing standards and such like. And then potentially on a quarterly or sort of biannual basis, you'll see the what I would call the partnership group get together and discuss the account as a whole. You know, this does vary. You can see those meetings coming annually as well. Uh, we have we have customers, clients that do annual uh, business review meetings at, the, at that sort of level. But it, it's horses for courses, and it does very much depend on the level of work that you have going through with that particular client and how comfortable they are with your processes. Because once you pad a client giving you work for a while, you put standards in place, you've got a the governance structure in place, and there's very few issues, and when issues do pop up, they're dealt with very quickly. You know, the, the client itself settles down in those meetings, the, the need for those meetings becomes less frequent, you know, regardless of the, the level that you're in. So, you know, we do see a lot of variation, but uh, so Mike, you, your, your clients uh, differ quite a bit about how they do it. Yeah, I mean, they, they do it in this, this very similar way to the way you described, but as you say, it, it's it's sort of generally at an operational level, so we will look very much at items that will be ongoing, any issues that have occurred across the projects, and then we'd also look at a level across the business, and not the business just of where we are, but also where we want to go, so that we're planning ahead for the introduction of platforms functionality um, so that, that's sort of how I see that and of course as you said the, the, the key 
component really is the, the level of business that you're doing. And so you have the meetings frequency that justifies is justified by the, the level of business that you have with that particular client at that time. As lots of clients go through peaks and troughs when they're rolling out their clinical trials and their products. Um, and, and then finally, obviously, the, the one, one I think we, we, we didn't talk about briefly was obviously audits. I mean, all of our clients generally audit us on a one- or two-year cycle. Um, and that's where the quality team obviously come in, who are, to some extent, disengaged from all of the discussions that we've talked about previously. So they're not involved in the day-to-day. They may have some insight on any issues. They're certainly probably not involved in the more business-related. But they come in at the audit level and then really look both as I said at the beginning, both at the, the particular studies, they might choose to audit a particular study in preparation for a potential submission perhaps, and they'll also look at the vendor to ensure that they are maintaining their systems and their processes accordingly. It's really based on the, the number of trials, the size of the, the client, to that level of, of oversight, that level of, of relationships. Um, one trial, okay, maybe you don't need the, the full pyramid to have your project teams discussing in open communications, you need to have those things very detailed in some sort of documentation to say, here's who's responsible for what. Start increasing studies, that pyramid starts to grow. That, that pyramid gets taller, it gets wider at the base, and it, it, but it, it maintains that same shape. What I'm also hearing from the three of you is, we have a saying here in Philadelphia, trust the process. Put something in place, let the process work its way through when, when there are issues or if there are concerns, but revisit that process, something that's going to just keep going and keep growing. And, and that's the key thing I'm taking from this is you have a partner, trust the process that your partner is doing what's best for you. Trust the experience that's coming from that. Don't too caught up in the minutia at a higher level. Let the project teams handle the day-to-day activities. Keep those escalation pathways open people who are responsible for it actually empower them to, to do it. You know, hold them accountable and let them be empowered to make those decisions. The question that I still kind of have, though, is who's the right person then at those levels? Where do they sit? Are, are we talking about people at those levels at the VP level, more of a level of involvement? Are we talking more of a business side? Where does that oversight, and is it different? I do believe it's different, and I think based on the differences between different size organizations, I think Big pharma companies, big biotech companies, they have entire departments that manage this uh, process. They have a relationship management group that are our counterparts or, or a governance, a governance team. group. Right. And and they have very well planned out you know, navigation through their silos that they have. And I think when you're dealing with a smaller company, that doesn't necessarily exist. I feel like large companies tend to dictate towards to us what they want. And smaller companies, we are asked for more advice, and we need to feel confident to offer advice in, in cases where it's appropriate, uh, even if we're not asked. So to answer your question, I feel like we would love to have touch points with cross-functional group at, at each sponsor company. That's not necessarily always realistic and certainly not something that we're in control of. So I, I get back to something I said earlier where you need to have a, a default starting point for, for our process and what we would like it to be, mm-hmm. but, it, but it has to be flexible or there has to be alternate versions depending on the type of partner that you're working with and, and be able to flex it to, to how they're designed and what their setup is and how much they're willing to contribute in, in terms of time and effort to relationship management slash governance process. And ultimately, it falls back to the client to determine that because 
according to the ICH guidelines, the new FDA guideline, that they're ultimately responsible. Right. The question I want to pose to you as we kind of close this out is, what is the most successful thing you've seen as far as oversight and man- relationship management that's helped? The one takeaway, and conversely to that, what is the most detrimental thing that you've seen a company do that really hinders the ability to, to grow and to provide that oversight and provide that, that relationship? And, and Mike, I'm, I'm going to pose that question, I think, to you first. <laughs> I think to answer the, the thing that's probably the most difficult that people do is, is trying to micromanage other groups. It's trying to, something that you said, Steve, is you, and uh, Matt, you mentioned it as well, it's about empowerment that make people grow. It's from the bottom up, it's really important to empower people to do well. They want to grow. They will grow, they will manage what they're doing, both at the study or the relationship level. That's really, really critical. And I think where people try and micromanage what is not their defined area of expertise, that, that we can see can sometimes throw up some problems. Um, I think on a positive note, where we see oversight is to come back to something that Robin said, you know, quite early on was those clients that have invested in a technology oversight group, where it's also it's their job as well as not just part of their day job. If that makes sense, it's not it's not like somebody's got a job already and we're now making them an IRT expert. Obviously. In the smaller companies, that's sometimes how it works. But with the, the bigger companies, it's where they've invested in there. Because then you've got this pathway that you've got to be able to make decisions and consistent decisions. To Steve's point, everything's got to change. But there's also got to be a level of consistency. Because if you've got quite a lot of studies, the same thing will happen during that study. And how you handle that on a consistent basis is really, really critical in your oversight because you're being consistent. So those are probably my two items. All right, and Robin, how about you? Well, as I say, Mike stole my thunder on the, uh, the, the internal group of the sponsor, the, the technical arm, as it were. I still think that's one of the most important areas, if not uh, the, you know, the most important area, because without it, you do have difficulties. And I think really the, the biggest problem that I see are the organisations that pay, dare I say it, uh, lip service to government, to oversight, Ask for what's the the most important element, or maybe what's what's something that doesn't work. And I think they're they're two sides of the same coin. Uh, I think trust is extremely important. You know, you used our, the example of trust the process earlier. We have uh, never gotten a call from a client and said, "Hey, here's a protocol. We want to start working." There's always an evaluation process that takes place. We are vetted by their auditors, uh, their procurement folks, uh, maybe members of the functional team. Uh, so we need to be approved or uh, evaluated or qualified before anybody will work with us. So, right, and that's all the start of that oversight. Exactly. That's that's the beginning of the oversight process. So 
I think the, the relationships, regardless of the size, that are successful, trust that, okay, the, this vendor was selected because they check all the boxes, they meet our needs from a very bunch of different variables. We're going to work with them. And when we, when we run into trouble is that lack of trust. Mike, Mike touched on micromanagement. We're all too busy in this industry to really uh, micromanage effectively. You have to put the things in place that are designed to help notify you when something does need extra attention, but you don't have to be providing that kind of micromanagement oversight on everything all the time. So to me, the relationships that we have that are most successful are the ones where we're trusted. We're not under the thumb of a sponsor company who just tells us what to do without any of our input or expertise being applied. We, we need to be able to do what we do. You hired us for a reason. You've qualified us as being competent to execute the projects that you want to give us. You have to allow us to do that. And I think that giving us the opportunity to handle situations, and, and we've talked a little bit about making sure we're keeping issue resolution at the lowest level possible that, that can get it resolved, that's, that's where that trust comes in. And the relationships we have that are most successful are the ones where we allow the process that we've put in place to work, and we don't interfere with it, we don't strangle it and keep it from working as designed. And you know, Robin made a really good point about, about lip service. I feel like these things go hand in hand because the companies that spend a lot of time with us setting all these things up but then don't really utilize them and do micromanage and don't really trust us uh, at the fundamental level, it is lip service. It's, it's a checkbox exercise. It's in someone's annual goals to get each vendor set up with a, a management or a relationship plan. Those, those are not the relationships that, that work. And honestly, it's funny. We, we see those relationships sometimes crumble and they go away from working with us. And then a couple of years later, they come back because they've just done the same thing with one of our competitors. And that, that really helps us realize that it's, it's them, not us. And it makes you feel a little bit better deep down, but it makes you want to subtly remind them that, hey, we have all this stuff in place. Let's allow it to work. Let's not step outside of it and, and ignore that it's there. We're putting in the effort to, to establish this upfront. Uh, let's allow it to, to do its job. Thanks, Steve. Couldn't agree more. Great discussion today around what oversight really means and how it fits into a relationship. Taking all of this in, the pros and the cons, one thing seems to be very clear. We need, as an industry, to trust the process. We need to allow those processes to work and reevaluate them on a regular basis. Regardless of company size, relationship management and sponsor oversight is something that can ensure a trial runs smoothly. The three main things that I personally took from this are the pyramid of oversight we talked about really brings the ideology together. Robin made a great point that if one of the levels in that pyramid is missing, the whole thing is going to become unstable. We've seen this happen with companies here at LMAC, and we've seen the opposite, where that pyramid is incredibly strong. Steve talked about actually putting into practice those principles. The idea of oversight and relationship management is more than just a poster on a wall or a WebEx meeting where no one is actually paying attention. The companies that are successful really implement a strong process and utilize different groups to understand the need and where the drive is coming from. The third is when Mike brought up being able to say no. It's important to listen, partner together, and understand the reasons why. Putting the escalation pathways in place is the safeguard to ensuring everything works according to plan. If you want to learn more, head on over to Almac Clinical University, where we have information around sponsor oversight and relationship management. You can also send any questions you may have for me there. I want to thank Mike Hutton, Robin Wood, and Steve McDonald for their time, and thank you for joining me today. Until next time, I'm Matt Lowry, and I encourage you to trust your processes and your vendors.
You've been listening to the Spotlight on IRT podcast, brought to you by Almac Clinical Technologies. If you have a question for our host or would like to suggest a topic for our next podcast, please visit our podcast page on Almac Clinical University at university.almacgroup.com.